So I left last weekend preaching three services, and there was no trees and, and great-looking stuff up here, and I show up tonight, and it just looks fantastic. So there's a team of people. I don't even know who does that. It just kind of happens. But if you were on that team, thank you so, so very, very much for decorating the church. We, we appreciate that. It looks, looks incredible. Um, okay, so if you attempted, we're starting the book of Nehemiah tonight. If you attempted to read all 13 chapters of one sitting, if you attempted it, raise your hand. Oh, good job. Keep it up if you finished and did it all in one sitting. That's amazing. Good job. I didn't get around to it until Tuesday morning. I thought if I'm preaching it, I better practice what I preach. I, I had done it a few weeks back, and I'm like, i got to do it again. And, and so I did it on Tuesday. It's like, man, that took me a little longer than I thought it was going to take, a little over an hour. Um, I'm a slow reader. And I'm not very smart. So it takes me a little bit longer to do that. Um, I think I've got it all covered. Am I missing anything? All right. All right, I think I'm good. I'm so excited to start Nehemiah. So we finished the book of Ephesians, and we were in Ezra before we were in Ephesians. And so um, some of the stuff, I'm going to do an overview first, and then we're going to do chapter 1, which has 11 verses. So we're going to do an overview and then chapter 1. And Some of the overview, you may or may not remember because it was months ago, um, is similar to what we did for, for the book of Ezra. It was really difficult. At the time that I mapped this out, I thought it was, you know, like, oh, I can do an, an introduction and chapter one all in one night. Like I said, I'm not real smart, and so that turned out to be a little bit challenging. There's just so much great stuff in chapter one, but so be it. It's good to be with you guys. The Lord loves you so much. Hey, you know, I was thinking about this. this I knew I was forgetting something. During worship, let me, let me just tell you what was a thought for me. And I, I, I hope, if this stings, I hope it stings in a good way. And if it doesn't sting, then that's great too. If we're not more in love with the Lord today, in this very moment, than we were before we walked in here, something's wrong. And if we're not more in love with God tomorrow than we were tonight, something's wrong. He's an infinite God and we are finite beings. We should be falling madly in love with God. And if we're not... If we're not moving ever so slightly on that continuum of maturity and falling in love with a God who loves us tremendously, something's wrong. It's right? Something has to be wrong. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our praise. He's so good to us. He's an amazing God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that's who we celebrate this holiday season. In a, 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 a devotional called My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers boldly states this. He says, I'm thankful that the Lord gives us difficult things to do. <laughs> well, is he crazy? As many of us have learned, when the Lord tells us to do difficult things, it's because He desires us to grow. Did you know that? The Lord wants all of us to grow. He expects us to grow. In God's Hall of Heroes are the names of nearly 100,000 Jews who starting in 538 B.C., they left captivity in Babylon for responsibility in Jerusalem. They left captivity for responsibility. We love to leave our captivity. We love to leave our sin. We love to leave those things that God wants to rid us of. But we forget about our responsibility in Jerusalem. We forget that we got work to do, Right? And so many of us, we celebrate, thank you, Lord, for delivering me from Babylon. He's like, yes, let's get to Jerusalem. There's work to be done. God had called them back home to do a difficult job, to rebuild the temple and the city and to restore the community and the Word of God. 
This noble venture involved a four-month journey plus a great deal of faith, courage, and sacrifice. And even after they arrived back in the holy city, life didn't get any easier, as we will see in the book of Nehemiah. As we read the story, we grasp the providence of God from start to finish. What God starts, He will finish. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are eager to spend time in Your Word, this book of, uh, of, of Nehemiah, Lord, these 13 chapters of seeing Your hand at work, Your faithfulness at work, that You led a people out of captivity, but to responsibility. We thank You that You led us out of captivity, but Father, help us to embrace the responsibility that You have for us, Your church. It's in the mighty name of Christ that everybody said, Amen. So, I did this last time, but I won't do as much. Let, let's, so you have 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and then 1st and 2nd Chronicles, right? So let's, and that's what leads into Ezra, then Nehemiah, and Esther, and all that goes together, right? So, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which leads into Ezra and Nehemiah. These two books supplement the historical records of Israel, along with 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And Kings was written during the exile, Chronicles covers the same period of time, but it was written after the return from exile. So one's written during the time, one's written after the time, which is really interesting. Kings, the books of Kings, points to their failure, whereas Chronicles points to their future. <laughs> and we must understand both. Chronicles points to their future and the hope that, that are found in God's wonderful plan for His people. These six books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles run through the history of Israel. The books of Chronicles teach us that God's presence is more important than a king's presence because his people wanted, a, wanted a, a man, they wanted a king. And so through Chronicles we are taught that God's presence is more important than a king's presence. And obedience to God is more important than political power or national status. Nothing's more important. Chronicles leads the, the post-exilic community, the, those that had been exiled, to refocus from monarchy to theocracy, from focusing from man back on God, get our eyes off of man and get our eyes back on God. So a recurring theme in Chronicles is, is that of repentance and return. Repentance and return. It's one thing to repent, but we must also return. The concept of, and I think I have it on the screen, this, if, I, I've mentioned this before, the retribution principle is found all through Scripture. And it's, it's found especially in Chronicles. It's the idea that God will bless His people with covenant blessings when they are faithful, but will punish them with covenant curses when they are unfaithful. That's an agreement that the people of God made with God. And that's the retribution principle. You say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, it's in the New Testament too. It's just spelled out a little differently. But it, it, it's exactly the same. Look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Where Paul writes to the church in Galatians, he says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, church. God will not be mocked in this. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap things eternal the retribution principle we sow to the flesh bad things happen we sow to the spirit great things happen and many of us know that all too well don't we a true kingdom is not political but spiritual a true kingdom is not political but spiritual look at zechariah 14 9 
he says the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one. In his name, the only one. He will be the only one and his name, the only one. That's the God that we sit here or we stand and we talk about and we study in Bible studies and community groups. That God, the king over all the earth, the only one in his name is the only one. And if we don't fall in love with him more now than we did before we walked in and more tomorrow than, we, than when we leave tonight, something must be wrong. Lord, help us. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Again, you have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then First and Second Chronicles. We're going to read all of chapter 36 because that leads us into the problem and then the return of these people. Second Chronicles chapter 36. It's just a couple 23 verses. I might read a little fast, so try to keep up. I think what, what I've heard that, you know, we can, we can process in reading like 10 times faster than what we can hear. So I can read really, really fast, and it's probably still too slow for you guys. But I'll do the best I can. Chapter 36, verse 1. Then the people of the land took Joahaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in place of his father in Jerusalem. This is the closing chapter of the problems with this, with this nation of Israel. And Joahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. I wonder what happened. He had to go back to college, I suppose. Then the king of Egypt deposed him at Jerusalem and imposed on the land a, a fine of 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim, his brother, king over Judah and Jerusalem, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Joahaz, his brother, and brought him to Egypt. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon. Ouch. And put them in the his temple, the pagan temple. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and the abominations which he did and what was found against him, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Jehoiachin, his son, became king in his place. And he was eight years old when he became king. Imagine that. And he reigned three months and ten days in Jerusalem. And he, he's eight. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. Like what happened there? At the turn of the year, the uh, king Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought him to Babylon with the valuable articles of the house of the Lord, and he made his kinsman Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. Zedekiah was 21 when he became king, and he reigned 11 years. He did evil. <laughs> you see a theme here, right? In the sight of his, uh, the Lord his God, and he did not humble himself. That would change everything, folks. Before Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke for the Lord, he did not humble himself. And so he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. And furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Oh Lord, may we never defile your house here at the Rock Community Church. Lord, help us. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he loved them. He had compassion on his people. The Lord is so good to us. He pursues us again and again because he loves us and he has compassion on us. And so if you're feeling pursued by the Lord, man, take that as his love for you. 
What verse am I on? I've finished 15. 16. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. And therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men and with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought all of that to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the walls of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And all that was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its de desolation that kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. And now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, who said 70 years to the day, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he sent a proclamation through his kingdom and he put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, you might as well say, thus says the Lord God Almighty, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. So, we did this a lot last time, and I just I think it's important to keep doing it. There was three deportations. So when the Israelites were naughty, they got hauled off. They got conquered and they got hauled off to Babylon. And so the first deportation was in 605, the second was in 597, and the third was in 586. And interestingly enough, there was three returns. God always restores the things that happened if we let them. And so there was three returns. In Ezra chapters 1 through 6, the first return was led by Zerubbabel in 538. The second return is covered in Ezra chapters 7 through 10. And that was led by Ezra in 458. And then Nehemiah is the third return, and that covers all of Nehemiah chapters 1 through 13, 14 years later in 444 B.C. And so after 70 years, just as Jeremiah prophesied, the Persian Empire emerges and Cyrus is its king. And so just as Nebuchadnezzar was God's instrument for judging his people, Cyrus is God's means of restoring his people. God uses whatever he wants to use to judge and to restore according to our sin and our unfaithfulness. One of Cyrus's first decrees is that a temple shall be built in Jerusalem, or the temple should be rebuilt, and anybody who wishes to return home can do so. And so Ezra and Nehemiah form one book in the Hebrew Old Testament. So that's why we handle it together. They just go together. Ezra and Nehemiah show numerous ways that God was faithfully at work to restore Israel to their land. If somebody asked Jesus, what, what do you do for work? And he said, I'm a carpenter. What does your dad do? Oh, he's in the restoration business. My dad's in the restoration business. God providentially brought favor with the Persian rulers, which we will see, and helped the Israelites overcome obstacles by their enemies as they rebuilt the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and reestablished God's word as their foundation of society. Ezra and Nehemiah existed together. They were contemporaries, and their, their, their books cover about a, a little over 100 years. Ezra was 
focusing and oversaw the spiritual aspects of the nation of Israel. And Nehemiah oversaw the physical aspects, but he was fierce spiritually. Both were members of standing in the royal Persian circles. Ezra was, was both a priest and a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. And Nehemiah was the governor, well known for his administrative skills, but both very much in ministry equally, doing the will of God. Both men, Ezra and Nehemiah, had a genuine concern for the reputation of the name of God, the name of Yahweh, in the midst of pagan opposition. I hope we do too. We see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah God's providential rule in human history. I mentioned this last time when we were in Ezra that we see the good hand of God on Ezra and Nehemiah. You see that phrase, the good hand of God was upon Ezra. The good hand of God was upon Nehemiah almost ten times. We see that God orchestrates kings and empires in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we see fulfillment of prophecies regarding restoration. It's powerful when God does what he said he was going to do. And so the exile, when they were exiled from their hometown and off to Babylon, it serves theologically, not only as God's punishment to Israel or of Israel, but also it serves as his purging and his purification. Sometimes that's what we need, isn't it? We need purging and purification, and we don't like what that looks like or how that feels or why did that happen, but sin is what brings that on, and God loves us enough to do that. And so I pray that we would all learn to praise our Lord for the love that He extends to us in His efforts to purge and purify us so that He might bless us. He loves us, and so He purges us and He purifies us so that He can bless us. The remnant who survived and owned up to their disobedience and unfaithfulness emerged very spiritually refined as many of us have when we go through that purification process. We emerge refined people. Mm. God still had a purpose for Israel. That's why they were still alive in, in, this, in, in this book that we're going through. He still had a purpose for them. God still has a purpose for us, and so he refines us. He is their king, and his law leads to a new and restored life. Okay. Nehemiah 1. Let's go to Nehemiah. So we were in Chronicles, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. Let's read these 11 verses of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. Chislev is November, December. In the 20th year of the king Artaxerxes, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah, they came and I asked them concerning the Jews, my people, who had escaped and had survived. I asked them about them and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province of Judah who survived the captivity there in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night. 
on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. See, I love verse 7. We have acted very corruptly. Sin corrupts us. We act corruptly when we're not obeying God. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded Moses, your servant, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, God says, and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Oh, he's so good. They are your servants, Nehemiah continues in his prayer. Lord, they're your servants. They're your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh Lord, I beseech you, he says again. He opens and closes with beseech. In his prayer, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's going to go talk to the king and say, dude, I need a favor. He says, I was the cupbearer to the king. Hmm. I did this last time in Ezra. I think it's helpful. Let's, let's just put up the chart of the Persian rulers. Okay, so... Uh, when Babylon was conquered in 539-538 uh, B.C., uh, Cyrus, and that's who we just read about. And that's kind of the list of the rulers. And, and Nehemiah takes place in, in 444, right during the reign of Artaxerxes I. That's where this book takes place. And then there's a the timeline I want to show you as well. I don't know if you guys can see it well from there. I think that's okay, but it just kind of gives you an idea of the different... Um, deportations in the returns in, in the different books where those things take place in the different chapters Ezra 4, Ezra 5, Ezra 6 and, and then in 444 Nehemiah arrives and so that's the whole book of Nehemiah is in 444 where he rebuilds the walls and the gates are restored so if that's helpful I just wanted to provide that for you so he closes off in verse 11 by saying I was a cupbearer to the king I, you know, I don't know if you go on monster.com or any job postings, but I don't think cupbearer is usually posted. But that was a job. Right? That, that's what he was. That's what Nehemiah was. It was a position of great responsibility and privilege to serve the king that closely. It was a, it was a position of great responsibility and privilege. Each meal the cupbearer tested, which often meant drank, the king's wine to see if it was poisonous. Wow. A man who stood that close to the king in public had to be handsome, cultured, trustworthy, knowledgeable in court procedures, and able to converse with the king and advise him if necessary. It's a very privileged role. The cupbearer cup was a person of incredible influence. It wasn't just this guinea pig guy that would just, you know, test the wine and then die or not die, is a person of great influence. And so Nehemiah's great influence was the result. It was the result of his character and his ability. It was the result of his character and his ability. We, church, we influence from character and ability. Not one, not the other, but from both. 
We must work on our character and our ability. We have the ability to walk as the Lord wants us to walk. Otherwise, He wouldn't ask us to do that. We have the ability to be led by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, as, as Scripture tells us. So we have the ability to do that. We have the ability to study and read and learn God's Word. We have the ability to be in fellowship with one another. We have the ability to be submissive to God's will. But our character is when we actually do it. Right? And we can't just have character, this incredible character that wants to do God's will, but have, don't work on our ability. We don't study God's Word. We don't rely on the Holy Spirit. We don't nurture our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ and learn how to function as the family of God. We have great character, but we don't know how to use that character, so we don't work on our ability. We must do both. If we're going to be influencers for the kingdom of God, we must work on both our character and our ability like Nehemiah did. Great influence takes time. Great influence takes time. And so what are we doing to become people of great influence for the Lord? What are we doing to become people of great influence for the Lord like Nehemiah was? Charles Spurgeon said this about Nehemiah. He said, We are not called to govern as Nehemiah did with an iron hand, but we ought to be equally inflexible, decided, and resolute for God and for His holy will. Wow. What about us? What about us? Are we resolute for the Lord and for the things of the Lord? Are we resolute for the Lord and for the things of the Lord like Nehemiah was. He confesses in his prayer the sins of people he never knew. Are we resolute for the Lord and for the things of the Lord? What's resolute? Well, I'll help you with that. It's unbendable. It's stubborn, unyielding, firm, determined, relentless in your walk with the Lord God Almighty. Do those words describe you? Are you a resolute man or woman of God? Unbendable, stubborn, <laughs> unyielding, firm, determined. Would the enemy come up to you and go, nah, there's just no chance I'm going to get anywhere with that person. They're resolute, man. They're stinking stubborn. They're unbendable. They're unyielding. They're firm in their faith. They're determined. I'm going to go knock on somebody else's door. Hmm. Would people say of us, man, that person is determined in the things of the Lord? Is that what people would say about us? God's work has never been easy, church. God's work's never been easy, and it's going to get more and more difficult to serve and follow Him. And tomorrow will require more resoluteness <laughs> than today. And the next day will, will require more resoluteness than tomorrow. But the same God, <laughs> but the same God who enabled Nehemiah to finish the walls of Jerusalem will also enable us to finish whatever he has called each and every one of us to do. Amen? So I ask you, how confident are we that we will serve the Lord faithfully the rest of our days? How confident are we that we will serve the Lord faithfully the rest of our days? And so if that's coming up for you, confess that to the Lord. So, Lord, I don't know if I'm resolute. I don't know how firm I am. I don't know how stubborn I am in the things of the Lord and how unyielding my faith is. So help me, Lord. Help me recognize what I need to do to get that corrected. Here's our outline for the time that we have left for chapter 1. 
verses 1 through 3, what's, it's a re, he gets a report. Like, hey, what's going on? What's going on with my people? What's going on with my, t- my hometown? Tell me the report. And then the rest of the chapter is his response. The report and the response. Let's look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Let's look at that report again. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it happened in the month of Chislev, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes I, while I was in Susa, the capital. Hanani, my, one of my brothers, and some people from Judah, some men came, and I asked them, give me a report. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about my hometown, Jerusalem, and this is what they said. The remnant there who survived, they're in distress and reproach. Great distress and great reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Not a good report, is it? This is many, many, many years later. The report's not very good. Verse 3 tells us that the people or the remnant in Jerusalem and the province in Judah are in great distress and reproach or shame and the city is destroyed. The city and its people are defenseless against enemy attacks. That's what they're saying. It's in ruins. So the city and the people are defenseless against the attacks of the enemy. Not good. This report instantly depresses or saddens Nehemiah, which we'll get into in chapter 4. And he says, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. What an interesting picture of the results of sin. That's what that is. That report is just a report on the results of sin. People are distressed, they're full of shame, and there's no protection. Sin just wipes us out. It distresses us, it brings shame, and we're defenseless against the enemy. Like Nehemiah, I ask you, are we allowing ourselves to be burdened for our brothers and sisters in the Lord? Like Nehemiah, he wasn't there when all this happened, and yet he's so deeply concerned about his people and the sins of his people and the brokenness of his hometown and the distress and the shame of his people. Are we allowing ourselves to be burdened for our brothers and sisters? It's hard, isn't it? When people do stupid stuff, and bad things happen. It's kind of like, well, you brought it on yourself, you dummy. Right? Nehemiah doesn't do that. He allows himself to be burdened for his brothers and sisters. What a great picture. I want to commend you that many of you are allowing yourselves to be burdened, and I want to say thank you. Many of you allow yourselves to be burdened for people in this church and for people outside this church. Thank you so very, very much. I commend you on behalf of our Lord. Thank you. Thank you to all of our servants, all of our leaders in this church, the prayer team that shows up every Monday and just is burdened for our church. All the community group leaders that lead groups in their homes and in some of these church uh, classrooms. Thank you to the pastors and the staff of this church, the elders and trustees. Thank you for being like Nehemiah, for allowing yourselves to be burdened for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much. By allowing ourselves to be burdened for others, we help our church family better defend against the enemy and future attacks because he will attack if we're not defending ourselves. And so when we allow ourselves to be burdened for others, we're helping one another defend against the enemy and future attacks. So I say thank you on my behalf. I know many of you pray for me and so you're allowing yourself to be burdened for me and I say thank you. 
I can't stress enough that if, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, we, I, I'm trying to make a bigger deal about community groups now, that that's, that's a place where that helps us bear one another's burdens and protect one another. We have 17 different groups and they're growing. If you want to be in a group, find a group. If you don't know how to find a group, come see me. I'll, you can join mine and I'll kick you out into one of the other ones a few weeks later. I'm kidding. We need that. So that's the report. That's the report. Let's look at the response. We're not going to read those verses right up front. I, we're going to read them as we go. So although the report was not good, verses 1 through 3, it's a bad report, right? Bad things are happening. The response was spectacular. He gets a bad report, and the response is incredible. Nehemiah's spectacular response includes three elements. We're going to look at these. A great posture to a bad report. So he gets a bad report and he takes an incredible posture. He takes an incredible, uh, 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 prays an incredible prayer. And then he has a great plan. He has a great posture, a great prayer, and a great plan. What do we do when we get negative reports? What happens to us? What do, how do we respond? What is our response? Nehemiah takes a great posture, says a great prayer, and he has a great plan. Let's break that down. Let's look at the first thing, a great posture. It's verse 4. Bad things happen, and when he heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Sometimes we just start surging forward when bad things happen, when we get a bad report, and God says, don't be afraid to, to sit and to mourn and to fast and to pray and be still before me and seek my face. Mm, it's just such a great posture on Nehemiah's part. He did two things. He sat down and wept and mourned for days, and then he fasted and prayed. He sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. What must that look like? To, to weep and mourn for days for your people, for sins that you didn't even commit. We talked about that also when we were back in Ezra a few months back. How do we respond when the reports of life come in and they are not good? How do we respond when the reports of life come in and they're not good? Do we take the time to weep and mourn? Do we take the time to fast and pray? Like Nehemiah, do we press into the Lord? Do we press into the situation? Or do we run from it? So that was a great posture. Let's look at a great prayer. Let's read verses 5 through 10, his great prayer. So he prays, I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly. We have not kept your commands which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you. But if you return and keep my commands, I will gather them from there and I will bring them back home where I will dwell with them. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to my prayer and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today as I'm going to go talk to, king, to the king and grant him compassion or grant me compassion 
before this man. Mm. So, he has a great posture, and now he prays a great prayer. And let me give you some ingredients of why this prayer is great. Why is this prayer great? What are the ingredients? What are some ingredients to a great prayer? First, we must recognize that we are but servants to an almighty God. Eight times from verses 5 through 11, the word servant or servants is used. If we want a a key ingredient to great prayer, we must recognize that we are but servants before an almighty God. And as but servants, what rights do we have before an almighty God? We have none. And so our posture before him is that you're God and I'm not. I am but a servant here to do your will, to be obedient to you. Eight times the word servant is used. Second, the second ingredient is we must be willing to repent. We must recognize who we are, our posture before God. The first thing, right, that we're servants. And the second thing is we must be willing to repent. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear my prayer. On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded us. Man, if we don't realize in our prayer life that we are but servants before an almighty God and our posture is one of humility to say, wow, he allows me to pray to him. I'm humbled by that, but I recognize that I'm nothing but a humble servant before an almighty God. And then I recognize that if I'm going to pray to that God, I better be in a, in a place of repentance. Because I bet you, if I looked hard enough, and I probably don't have to look that hard, there's plenty of things that can come to mind when I'm recognizing as a servant before an almighty God in prayer that I got some things I probably need to repent of. And if you need help, just ask somebody to your left or to your right, and they'll probably be able to share with you what you need to repent of. Right? It doesn't take much to figure that out. We're just so wicked at times. And so that's another ingredient of a great prayer is we must be willing to repent. We must be willing to repent of everything. The third ingredient of great prayer is that we must be confident in asking the Lord to remember His promises. He does that. He says to God, hey God, remember it's like, God's like, oh, I man, I appreciate that. I, I forgot about that. No. We must be confident in asking the Lord to remember. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. He says, remember. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying that if you are unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you. Okay, that happened, Lord. But if you return, God, see, you made that promise too. If you return and keep my commandments and do them, though those who have been scattered were in the remote parts, I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to dwell with them. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. He's reminding God of his covenants. What, right? That's, that's, an, that's an ingredient to a great prayer is reminding God and being reminded of what God has promised and recalling those things and claiming those things, if you will, in our lives and speaking that truth in our lives as we pray to the Almighty. So what that means is this. It means that being in the Word, studying the Word, being in the Word together in a community group, knowing the Word gives us confidence to ask the Lord to remember His Word spoken to us when we pray. That's powerful. Nehemiah, man, he don't mess around. He's like, yeah, I'm a servant, 
Yeah, I'm going to confess my sins and I'm going to claim the promises of God upon my life and upon my people. Wow. That's why we need to be in the Word of God. It'll change our prayer life. It's a key ingredient to how we pray. And he says here, check this out. I got to see in verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments, and he says it again, and do them. If you return to me, he says, like, Lord, I'm back. He's like, hey, good to see you. Keep, do. It's not just about, right? Return to me is all about keeping and doing. Returning to him is about keeping and doing what? His commands, his commandments. If you return to me and keep my commandments and do my commandments, then you will be scattered no more. We will be in fellowship again. Mm. So the opposite of that is <laughs> we will be scattered from our Lord when we're not keeping his word, when we're not in the word. How can we not be? He'll scatter us if we don't keep his word, and he'll fellowship with us if we do keep his word. He does not, it says in the end of verse 9, where he causes his name to dwell. He does not cause his name to dwell where his word does not exist. He cannot, will not, cause his name to dwell where his word does not exist. It's why we put such a big emphasis on God's word. His name won't dwell where his word does not exist. He will scatter us, will be scattered. And lastly, a great plan. So we had a great posture, a great prayer, and a great plan. All part of Nehemiah's spectacular response. Great posture and great prayer before a great God <laughs> should lead to great plans. Should it not? A great posture, great prayer before a great God should lead to great plans for him and for his people. I'm, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning literally in the last few months to pray for greatness. For me, for you, for this church, for his kingdom, for whatever the heck he wants to do because he's a great God. And when we have a great posture and we have great prayers before a great God, it should lead us to great plans for him. God does great stuff. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every one of us is a result of God doing great stuff. And he's not done. He's still doing great stuff. I pray and encourage you to pray for great stuff, for God to do great stuff in you and through you and around you. Hmm. Let's read verse 11. O oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. He's talking about himself. And the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's going to go talk to the king. So I ask you, what great plans are you beseeching the Lord for today? What great plans are you beseeching the Lord for today? I encourage you to start thinking about that. Can you, like Nehemiah, request from the Lord to be successful today? That's what he says in verse 11. I love these words. We'll read it one last time and then we're going to close in prayer. O Lord, I beseech you, he says, may... I like that first word, may. May your ear be attentive to my prayer. That's the first one. And then he says, 
Make your servant successful today. Wow. Lord, may your ear be attentive. Listen to what I'm saying, Lord, because I'm in a great posture and I'm going to do a great prayer and I'm going to do great elements of prayer. And so may your ear be attentive to me, Lord. Make your servant successful and grant me compassion. Wow. Nehemiah chapter 1. So endeth our time. Let me pray. I'm going to pray for us, and when I'm done, if you need prayer for anything, we got some people that know how to pray, and they'll pray with you and for you over here to my left. Almighty God, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for the stories that can change our lives, that change the lives of, of those back in 500 B.C., Lord, and it's the same stories that are changing our lives today. We're incredibly grateful. Thank you for this man that has allowed himself to be burdened for his people who, who knows that he can expect great things from you when, he's, when his posture and his prayer and, and the key ingredients of prayer are all in the proper place, Lord, that we can expect great things from you. God, we love you, we thank you, and we recognize your greatness. We recognize the greatness of who you are just by looking at every life in this room. We give you praise. In the mighty name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen.